0: Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal RZA, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. There is a ton of headline making shit going on right now in politics and policy at home and abroad from the commanding heights of governments east and west to the bomb ravaged blood soaked battlefields of Ukraine. Some of that news is terrifying and grotesque. The mounting evidence of Russia's war crimes, which has led President Zelensky to claim that Vladimir Putin is pursuing a policy of straight-up genocide against the Ukrainian people, for one thing. By comparison, some of the news is merely shocking and appalling. Jenny Thomas's batshit crazy QAnon-infused text messages to Mark Meadows, advocating nothing less than a coup d'etat on January 6th, and her Supreme Court justice husband's failure to disclose her manic, frantic, antic, and clearly seditious lunacy, let alone recuse himself from more than one case directly dealing with the insurrection and White House communications pertaining to it. Some of the news, as has often been the case with stories involving Donald Trump, is at once somehow utterly unsurprising and yet still jaw-dropping and eye-popping. The more than seven-hour gap in the former guy's White House call logs on that fateful day, January 6th, which, of course, summons up vivid memories and bangs out deafening echoes of the darkest days and most flagrant abuses of White House power in recent memory by Richard Nixon during Watergate. That was a lot shorter gap, though, missing from those tapes. These stories may seem disparate and disconnected, but they are not. What's happening in Ukraine is a grand existential battle between democracy and autocracy, freedom and authoritarianism, civil societies and mafia states, the peaceful settlement of collective disputes and the deployment of political violence. The same battle is taking place, if less horrifically and with a much smaller body count in countries all around the world, including right here in these United States of America. The other thing that ties these stories together is that, of all the human beings on planet Earth, there is literally no one I'd rather talk them through with than our guest for another special two-part edition of this podcast. My longtime buddy and TV bestie, a woman whose maiden name was Debanish, and who now goes by Wallace, but who, for her countless fans, is known simply as Nicole. Hi Nicole.
1: Liz Cheney isn't satisfied with the DOJ prosecutions of the insurrectionists because Liz Cheney doesn't believe that any of the morons who beat up cops on that day are the cause for 1-6. Liz Cheney believes that Trumpism and Donald Trump and the Fox News disinformation fire hose. We talk about an echo chamber. That sounds peaceful. You could nap inside an echo chamber. (laughs) It, It is an information beating. What people on the right get from Trump and Fox is an assault of violent disinformation meant to incite them to action.
0: Nicole Wallace has been on Hell and High Water twice before, the first time in the episode we dropped on Election Day 2020, and then again just about a year ago in a rollicking no-holds-barred, and for many people, but not me unexpectedly and delightfully profane two-parter, Miss Wallace, potty mouth. Of the 79 previous episodes that we have made of this show, those two featuring Miss Wallace have been the most downloaded of all of them, proof positive of something for which, in truth, there was already ample evidence that people really, really love listening to Nicole. Given that, I won't waste your time with too much introductory biographical prattle, her upbringing in the Bay Area, schooling at Berkeley and Northwestern. Go Cats! Go Cats! Her time working first for Jeb and then George W. Bush, her labors on behalf of John McCain and his misbegotten, moose-hunting running mate, of which more momentarily, back in the 2008 presidential campaign, and finally her meteoric rise to stardom at MSNBC. I will say that, like the prior two-parter we uncorked a year ago, this doubleheader is a humdinger, so much so that you may not even notice the bang and clatter that occasionally are audible in this recording due to some springtime construction happening outside of Nicole's home while we were gabbing. In part one, we discussed the 1-6 committee and what's at stake for the country and the outcome of its inquiry, Liz Cheney's moral clarity and Trump's increasingly irrefutable criminality, Ginny Thomas's brain rot, Clarence Thomas's corruption, and President Zelensky's status in Nicole's words as, quote, a leader for the ages. Then in part two, dropping here on Wednesday, same bat time, same bat channel, we go deep on what has become of the party Nicole once considered her political home, that party of Lincoln and Reagan, and yes, even Bush, how it succumbed to a potentially fatal case of intellectual scurvy, ideological leprosy, and ethical syphilis, including a conversation along these lines that you will not want to miss, involving the return to public life of Nicole's noir Sarah Heath Palin. And finally, since I know you're dying to ask, yes, yes, yes. There is potty-mouthedness aplenty coming your way in today's show, and not just from your irredeemably obscene, vulgar, coarse host, but from his guest, along with the occasional moment of levity and glimmer of optimism. Because if there's one thing that makes Nicole not merely a superb political analyst and endlessly engaging partner in conversation, but to borrow a phrase, a friend for the ages is that she knows that laughter and faith and hope aren't signs of frivolity or obliviousness about the perilousness of our current moment, but the last best tools we have at our disposal for fighting through the seemingly all-encompassing profusion of hell and high water.
1: As we meet here tonight... Vladimir Putin continues his brutality against Ukraine, killing innocents, reminding us what happens when authoritarians rule. And each day we see footage of the unyielding courage of the Ukrainian people who are fighting and dying to defend their freedom. Their bravery reminds us that democracy is fragile Democracy only survives if citizens are willing to defend it. We live in the greatest constitutional republic in history. No citizen in our republic can be a bystander. If we don't stand for our freedom and our republic, we will lose them. Hi, Nicole. Hi.
0: All conversation between you and I should begin with. Hi, Nicole.
1: Hi. I know. Well, you told me that was controversial. I didn't well, know yeah, that. I don't are, see that.
0: I know. I've never really understood it. There are people like on that infernal Twitter machine who are like, it's really creepy the way you say hi to Nicole. I'm like, really?
1: A lot of people, it's because I think I come out of the gate like the way I go through my life with the, <laughs> you know, eleven things to say before I say hello. And so I think it's it's, it's, nice. it's also
0: it's a full head of steam, you know. It's like every right. once in a while you just want to break and remind people. I guess it's like people who don't Sort of get that we're friends, and so right. they're like, kind of like, it's weird. You shouldn't treat a, a host of a show that way. I'm like, well, I mean, I respect Nicole's hostessness, hostness as much as any, as Is much as anybody. I don't know <laughs> as much as any, as much as anybody on earth. But I also, I think, even before the guest host relationship comes, the friendship, right? Of That's course, like, that of should course. be primary, many,
1: many years long.
0: So there's Liz Cheney in that 1-6 committee hearing a week ago. Yeah. I want to ask you two things because I want to spend some time. The 1-6 committee, it's like we spent a month basically covering nothing but the war. And then all of a sudden, this past week, it's like not just we're back focused on domestic stuff, but it's really we're focused on the most important thing, which is the 1-6 committee, where it's going, what does it mean for American democracy, all of which we'll talk about. But that speech, she is, and you know you know me, I don't agree with Liz Cheney by very much. I but. Know. If you go back and look at everything she's done in the last six or nine months, she hasn't really put a foot wrong on these issues. Every time she talks, she's just like on message, on theme, her eyes on the ball. Do you agree? I I think you agree with that.
1: Yeah. Well, so look, I think this is everything. And I think you've touched on this thing where I have 7000 things to say, but I'll start with one. The notion that covering the war in Ukraine was a diversion from covering the threats, existential and literal, to democracies was a big mistake, a blunder, if you will. And I think that what Liz does in that speech is on two levels. This is what Liz is doing. Liz's willingness to sacrifice her political fortunes in America are because she believes that being willing to die to save your democracy is the whole fucking point. And we don't need to relitigate the Iraq war, but that is what, for Liz Cheney, it was all about, that democracies don't threaten their neighbors. That is what the axis of evil was about. And I think that what Liz Cheney has put her finger on is a new axis, maybe she wouldn't call it evil, but of peril to democracies between Trumpism, Vladimir Putin, and all that would bolster the most serious existential and actual threat to the world's democracies.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's basically just the same fight. It's
1: the same thing. It's
0: not like there's this thing going on in Ukraine that's horrible and there's this butcher and this dictator and there's like, it's a separate thing. It's part of this web, this fabric where all the same fights between democracy and autocracy, between freedom and authoritarianism, between civil institutions settling our political disputes and political violence. It's just all the same fights. And we're just fighting it here on the home front thankfully, without cluster bombs.
1: And I think the most extraordinary thing about covering the war in Ukraine, and you've gone to the region, and I'm so jealous that you have that perspective. I've covered it from the security of our studios. But what's so extraordinary about it is that 40 days ago, they were us, right? They were taping podcasts in their homes. Their kids went off to school. And now they go underground at night to avoid the bombs dropping. Some of them have lived in the subways for 40 days. And we have this idea like that can't be us. But what do people think happened in the U.S. Capitol when Mitt Romney ran for his life, when people went underground to tunnels? It wasn't a country at war, but it was a building under siege from disinformed autocratic sympathizers. And I think what Liz Cheney sees is not this distant tangential relationship between an emboldened autocratic force and a democracy that doesn't agree on everything, but agrees that they want to stay a democracy and what happened here on January 6th.
0: So I think that's right. And we moved like normally in a really well-constructed interview, you would like kind of go step by step <laughs> where you'd hit some of the news bites, like what they meant. And then we'd, build to, the, we'd build to the stakes. No, no, I, I started it by invoking Liz Cheney, which I knew would take us immediately to the stakes. So now we've set the stakes. You know. Here's my question for you is the 1-6 committee. Here's my thought about this. If I were telling the story of the 1-6 committee, I would say Republicans shut down the notion of a real 9-11 style commission. They consigned it to the House, which meant that it was going to be immediately incredibly partisan. Nancy Pelosi does the right thing and says no one can be on this committee who is an insurrectionist and voted to overturn the election. That gives Kevin McCarthy a chance to basically say it's a witch hunt. It's a partisan exercise. And we spent most of 2021 with what it looked like to me, on the basis of external observation and internal reporting, where the committee was kind of spinning its wheels a little bit, and the worry was, man, there's not that much time; they're going too slow, holy shit, they're not going to get there and then, like some corner turned, and since they decided to to slap Bannon with a contempt citation, but then you had Cheney basically suggesting back last December that Trump might have committed a crime. The Supreme Court says, "Fuck you, there's no executive privilege for you by an eight to one vote, and ever since then, it's felt like again, with still time very short, like the committee's making gains, getting traction, getting work done. And still the question is whether they're going to get it done in time. I guess what your assessment is, whether you share that sort of overall, that's the arc of the narrative and what you think of the work they've done so far. How well are they performing in your judgment? What's your, your sense of the late, not midterm, but kind of like third quarter progress report on the 1-6 committee?
1: We can't cover them like it's not a congressional story. It's really not even like an investigative story. It's not the Mueller probe, right? They're not trying to prove what Mueller did, answer whether or not crimes were committed. And again, I see the hallmarks in this because I worked with Liz Cheney after 9-11. Its analog is the 9-11 Commission's work. And what the 9-11 Commission sought to do at its core was understand how people like Richard Clark saw flashing red And yet the country suffered its most brutal slaughter on the homeland ever from a terrorist network in history since Pearl Harbor. So I think if you look at that, and the New York Times has reported on the tactics being deployed by Liz Cheney and has made this tie to prosecutorial practices and employing U.S. attorneys. But I think if you go one step deeper, what Liz Cheney is doing with the metadata is trying to connect the dots between the threat that realized itself on 1-6 and the threat that looms. And I think the mistake we make in talking about the 1-6 committee's work is in thinking it's solely about understanding how 1-6 happened, Trump's culpability. That's a big part of it. And frankly, that's the shining object that people like me follow for cable news purposes. But I think at its core, what Liz Cheney is trying to do is address you know, and again, Al Qaeda is the best parallel because it's the last thing I heard anyone named Cheney talk about as an <laughs> existential threat to our democracy. Yeah, sure. Liz Cheney isn't satisfied with the DOJ prosecutions of the insurrectionists because Liz Cheney doesn't believe that any of the morons who beat up cops on that day are the cause for one six. Right. Liz Cheney believes that Trumpism. And Donald Trump and the Fox News disinformation fire hose. We talk about an echo chamber. That sounds peaceful. You could nap inside an echo chamber. (laughs) It, It is an information beating. What people on the right get from... Trump, and Fox is an assault of violent disinformation meant to incite them to action. And what Liz Cheney is trying to do is defang Trumpism the way the Cheneys sought to dismantle al-Qaeda as a threat. And I think when we cover the committee's work and we try to assess its progress in getting Merrick Garland out of his cocoon of fealty to norms, we miss what Liz Cheney's actually doing. She's trying to eliminate a threat to the United States of America.
0: Right. I've been enjoying this part of the conversation because it will make so many liberals uncomfortable who will all be like, oh, no, the connection between the two. It makes it seem like the Dick Cheney fight in the global war on terror. But she's
1: outnumbered by Democrats on the committee. I'm I'm not saying this is what the committee will do. I'm just saying as someone who's a student of Liz Cheney.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I I, I don't disagree with you. I think that even drawing the the parallel, I mean, for a lot of people who will be fellow travelers with Liz Cheney right now on the notion that Donald Trump and the the insurrectionist right – are a fundamental threat to American democracy. And so therefore, they'll be like, go Liz Cheney, go Liz Cheney, to draw the parallel to what her father wanted to do with respect to Osama bin Laden and the global war on terror just makes people uncomfortable because most people who are in that camp, the pro-Cheney camp on the 1-6 and all the adjacent and ancillary connections to it are not like that comfortable still. Certainly, I mean, they hate Dick Cheney to begin with and and they're not really that comfortable. Many of them, I think, would say that they think in retrospect that The threat to democracy of Islamic fundamentalism, terrorism, fascism, Islamofascism, whatever you want to call it, is as bad as the threat that homegrown autocracy and authoritarianism that Trump represents than Trumpism represent is. I think a lot of them would say this is more serious a threat and that that earlier one was overblown. Do you think that the parallel really works in the sense that they're both? Well,
1: the statistics would bear them out as correct. And I yeah. think FBI Director Christopher Ray has testified under oath that yeah. a far greater threat to the American homeland for years now has been and right. it's not neutral. It's far right wing yes. and it's associated with racism. So I, th- I think they would be correct.
0: Well, they'd be correct today. I think the relevant question would be at the time of 9-11. Now, again, not to, I don't know. These words are about to come out of my mouth, which would be to be fair to Dick Cheney, which is not like a... <laughs> <laughs> a phrase that comes naturally to me. But, but I think the relevant thing, I'm not sure Christopher Ray would have said that in 2002 or 2003. But anyway, I think that it is true that she is trying to connect these dots. And so it feels sort of small to ask about smaller things, but I will nonetheless, just <laughs> just in, in this sense. I mean, again, that's a pretty big thing. The news last week broken by Woodward and Costa about the seven hour gap in the White House phone logs which immediately drew all the natural comparisons to Watergate. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't mean to come back to the shiny object, although I do think, you know, Donald Trump's pretty important in this story, and I know you I do love too. shiny
1: objects, yeah. So, but, and,
0: and Donald Trump's pretty important in this story. So totally. when that story broke, what did you think?
1: So I have two thoughts about the missing seven and a half hours. I think if you close your eyes, like pin the tail on the donkey, and pick any day in the Trump presidency, you could have a missing, you could have a black <laughs> box. And you're like, they were morons. And the whole notion that they did anything to conform to the Presidential Records Act. You know, they were crimes that would have had me hauled up before Henry Waxman's committee if I had violated the White House Records Act. But he's such a brazen, corrupt actor that we act like it's no big deal. It's a huge deal. And it's a huge deal if on the day that the Capitol was attacked, there's almost eight hours where we have no idea what the president was doing. But I think we can't wallow in wonder for too long. What were they doing? They didn't want anyone to know what they were doing. And I think what's always fascinated me, I worked in the White House after 9-11. When people think that building is in threat, they rush the president to the PIOC. Nobody thought the president was in any danger. They did it around the... The protests over the summer.
0: Say what the PIOC is.
1: The PIOC is the underground, sort of windowless bunker under the White House. I think Trump was taken there during the protests over the murder yeah. of George Floyd. Yeah. But there's no evidence that he did any of the things that an American commander chief is supposed to do call the National Guard, call to make sure your number two is okay. So I think that the gap in the calls is extraordinary because of the day on which it happened. But I would theorize that there are a lot of days that are just black boxes for this White House where they didn't follow any of the rules. They didn't keep any of the records. I mean, he chewed up and pooped out speeches. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, appalling trespasses of the way you're supposed to deal with records. And this is this is one of what makes it an extraordinary scoop. An extraordinary story is it was the day the country was under attack.
0: Right. I want to be clear about one thing. I think when Nicole refers to chewing up and pooping out speeches, I think she's being metaphorical, not literal. Oh, the Although
1: Toilets were clogged no, so and I the speeches just, were chewed yeah, up. I don't know how they got yeah, it in the toilet. He know, crumpled them up or whatever. Let's not, that, let, let's, not that.
0: Try, let's not try to imagine Donald Trump actually p- pooping out a speech draft because that's they like were it. crumpled
1: up and thrown know, in the toilet. The pipes were clogged with his speeches.
0: There was not a lot of concern for records and for proper process in the White House. I think that's fair to say. So there's, you know, these things that happened last week, right? Scabino and Navarro got hit with contempt citations. Let's just play one thing here. I want to just listen to Jamie Raskin here from that same hearing talking about Peter Navarro, because I think, again, it's always good to hear some clarity here. Here's Jamie Raskin talking last Monday at this January 6th committee meeting where they voted to refer to the House Contempt citations for two more senior Trump aides, one of them, Peter Navarro, the trade advisor. Here comes Jamie Raskin.
2: Peter Navarro was the White House trade advisor. It was not within his job
0: description to overthrow presidential elections, coerce vice presidents into abandoning their constitutional responsibilities, or impose counterfeit regimes in place of the U.S. Constitution. So please spare us the nonsense talk about executive privilege rejected now by every court that has looked at it. This is America, and there's no executive privilege here for presidents, much less trade advisors, to plot coups and organize insurrections against the people's government and the people's constitution. That's pretty strong, right? I mean, I think that's...
1: (laughs) Jamie Raskin is incredible. I mean, I think he is perhaps the most incredible human story trying to protect the country from another January 6th. I mean, I read his book. I know you've talked to him too. He's just, he's incredible. And his clarity and his inability to mess around with the baloney is just, you know, a gift to our democracy. And he's just extraordinary. I can't listen to him without thinking about all that he's lost, losing his son and then losing, you know, place where he works. I think he's extraordinary. And I think he had a real moment Tuesday night in that contempt hearing.
0: So these guys got hit with contempt citations. We know that. We know that there's this call log story, which, again, raises the specter of Watergate. You know, you've got Woodward and Costa out there kind of saying there are people who now think cover-up. Now, I agree. Both these things can be true. They can be totally incompetent and not give a shit about paying attention to the record statutes. They also could be committing a cover-up that both of those things can be true. But that's a big deal. And then Jared Kushner comes in last week. You know, given the, the reality of Donald Trump, like, enraged by anybody in his orbit who is even complying with subpoenas on this committee. You know, Meadows was like ready to cooperate, sent a bunch of documents in. Trump got mad and Meadows is like, oh, sorry, I can't cooperate anymore. You know, (laughs) Trump is like just raining terror down on anybody who, again, even complies with a subpoena. He's like, you got rather have you go to jail for me. And then his son-in-law just walks in there, not walks in, he did by Skype or Zoom, but (laughs) he, he just agrees voluntarily and he's in there for hours. What does that tell you as a reader of Trump? Family psychology and anthropology that Jared Kushner's just like, okay, I'm going in.
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure you, like me, were spun big time in the beginning of the Trump presidency by people close to Jared and Ivanka yeah. about what a force for good they were. And that's absolute horseshit. Chris Christie made abundantly clear, and his battles with the Kushner family predate the Trump presidency. But Jared has a single consideration. And that is both his inheritance and the, you know, comedy within the family. So Jared Kushner is there, I think, because he assured his father-in-law that he could do some good. And he has an outsized sense of his abilities. I remember meeting with him at the beginning of the presidency and he was gonna usher in Mitty's piece. I mean, he's a ludicrous character in the Trump story and remains <laughs> so to this day.
0: Yeah, I, I still do. I just wonder what's going on in that family. I don't know why. I, I try not to care that much about <laughs> about like the internal palace. It's not even a palace anymore, the Mar-a-Lago intrigue of it all. But I do wonder like what it was that got Jared a dispensation that allowed him to
1: I'm sure he told, you know. I don't know what he calls him, Donald, that um, he could go and make it all go away. I'm sure he told him he could help. He told him he could create East peace. I mean, Donald Trump believes Jared Kushner when he talks, it would appear. But the notion that he's there to protect our democracy or aid Jamie Raskin and Liz Cheney and their mission is hard for me to believe. Maybe he'll prove me wrong. Maybe Jared will become a Brave heart character in all this and color me shocked.
0: The ultimate stoolie in the whole thing. Yeah. So here's my big question about this, right? So all of this stuff, as I said before, the context for this is... Time is short. I mean, if you take your analysis of the committee, like we don't analyze it the right way because it's this other thing. It's a small part of a much larger fight. And so figuring out exactly how to judge it is hard. It's hard to, you know, you can report on it in a micro way, day by day. What news is coming out of the committee? When are they going to have the hearings? When's the report going to be done? What's going to be in the report? But in the end, it's this larger kind of story. I agree with all of that. I do think that that the biggest thing, you know, last week, although it has no force of law, is this federal judge out in California in the Eastman case who says, "You know what? It's obvious that Trump broke the law, and the reason why." Again, I don't think this is a shiny object thing. I think actually, it's altered the it's huge. It's altered the perspective. It's not even a ruling. It's an opinion in another ruling, right? Yeah. But it's a federal judge standing up and saying that basically Liz Cheney and others that their theory of the case that they first floated in December that Trump, maybe he broke the law. Did he might, might he have broken? Here's a couple statutes to look at, guys. Right. And then as a couple months passed and they were like, he may have broken the law, they asserted that. And now it's sort of clear, right? And this is my big point. For most of last year, what we said about the 1 6 committee was, They need to get to the bottom of what happened, not just on the day of 1-6, but in the whole effort to subvert, overturn a free and fair election in America. We need to understand that. And if they get the whole story out, that will be a huge accomplishment. But as soon as you got the question in the water of Donald Trump needs to be indicted, might have broken actual federal statutes – The kind of perspective on it changed. It wasn't clear that they were going after Donald Trump. We asked that question for months. Will they really go after Donald Trump? Now it's really clear. They're going after Donald Trump. They want to see him indicted. And we saw that last week when that judge ruled and said, it's obvious he's broken the law. All of a sudden, there was this chorus of Democrats, not coincidentally, I would say, on the committee and elsewhere, just saying, where is the DOJ? This is now the standard by which this committee, I think, is going to be judged. Are they going to bring Trump to justice Am I right about that, or am I over-dramatizing?
1: Look, I mean, Katie Benner, the DOJ reporter from The Times, delivered piles of reality to me yesterday, and I, I kind of view this differently. I mean, I think we should look at Merrick Garland the way we looked at Mueller, and I think Merrick Garland is doing what Mueller did. He's simply looking for crimes, and it's very unsatisfying. It will create a lot of discontent with what feels like an inability to see one six the way Liz Cheney does as this existential threat to democracy. But I don't think he's doing any more than that. And I think that when you look at why this feels like such a limp response to this huge attack on the seat of democracy, it's because It's possible that it is. It's possible that they are sort of building a case up from the bottom. And what's confounding is you have all these witnesses that 1-6 has brought in. If you wanted to understand if as Judge Carter said, more likely than not, felony fraud. It's the two statutes that Liz Cheney said were violated, you know, obstructing an official proceeding and defrauding the U.S. government. The Times was also first to report that those were the crimes the committee was looking at. It would appear that what uh, federal judge Carter sees in the evidence he's examined and perhaps what's in public is evidence more likely than not of felony fraud and a felony campaign to obstruct a federal proceeding. There's no evidence that those are the crimes that DOJ is investigating. And when people say, oh, they might be, it's their job to do it quietly, okay, that's fine. Let's pull that thread. We know exactly how Donald Trump and his inner circle function under scrutiny. We watched it with two impeachments where they tried to out whistleblowers where they were bullying and witness tampering the entire time those proceedings were underway. And we watched it for three years of the Mueller probe. They're not under federal criminal investigation.
0: Right. Look, I agree. And, And we both know, you know, there's a grand jury that's impaneled. If they were going after top Trump people, we would know. It's just you would start to hear even though the grand juries are secret. So what do you make of that then? You know, you hear Elaine Luria was on your show that night at the committee hearing was like, Merrick Garland, do your job. And that's basically the posture, you know, Adam Schiff, all these guys are out there in public basically saying, look, we're doing our job here. We're trying to investigate this thing. We're trying to get to the bottom of it. But in the end, we don't have the ability to prosecute anybody. And it seems like now there's a kind of a unified chorus among those who know most about what happened is... Among These are Democrats, mostly, speaking to another Democrat, Merrick Garland, in a Democratic administration, saying, you guys are not doing what you should be doing. The case is clear. How can you not be investigating the president who called Brad Raffensberger and said, hey, can you please find me whatever that number was of votes? That's obviously a federal crime, right? With right. even not even getting to the ones that Cheney cited. So what do you make of that? What's your assessment of why that's – I know you, said, you studied Kitty Benner a second ago, but A, what's your assessment of why it's not happening – and B, how pissed should we be about that if we should be pissed about it?
1: So my worry, I'll tell you my worry. My worry is an inside a government, you're always in a bubble, right? Like I was in the bush bubble. And my worry is that inside the Biden Justice Department bubble, they are defining a non-political justice department as one unafraid to pursue a criminal investigation of Hunter Biden. That that is their definition, their working definition, and that what they have defined as a political Justice Department is one that follows in the path of Bill Barr and all too willingly investigates the current president, Joe Biden's political adversaries. So that is my worry, that the way they think they can heal the excesses of the Bill Barr DOJ is to not be political. And the way they've defined being apolitical is being all too willing to investigate Hunter Biden's alleged trespasses, whatever those are, and that for them, the way to heal the rule of law is to not pursue investigations into Republicans. And that's my wake up in the middle of the night fear.
0: Yeah, I think there's a good reason to be afraid of that. I mean, the thing of bubbles is something that I think you understand in a way that some other people don't, that this is the kind of thing that happens, especially in justice departments, right? Where the notion of independence is like, You know, the attorneys general and and the teams they put together have this sense of themselves. They are. They're independent. They're not under the control of the White House. The president doesn't tell the attorney general what to do. And in their noble pursuit of actually living up to that standard, they sometimes get inside their own heads and convince themselves of things that are like the standard you just laid out, which is like, in order to prove that we're apolitical, we end up doing things that are like just upside down, bizarro world political. Super political. Super political, political, right? It's like, you're, yeah, I mean, it's like, that's the crazy thing about it. That's not an apolitical way of looking at the world. That's a bending over backwards to not look political. But by doing that, you're actually being incredibly political.
1: Uh, I've been asking this question all week long because it really does dawn on me with this opinion on Monday that DOJ is at odds now with what former federal judges appointed by Democrats and Republicans, Congress, and sort of the public thinks should be happening. And- it dawns on me that there's a lot of chafing inside the building with these questions being asked. And my evidence of that is former DOJ officials have suggested gently to me that my line of questioning could push them the other way. And I said, Don't even say that to me. The notion that me at four o'clock on MSNBC could say something that could prevail upon the Justice Department to do or not do something is the biggest indictment of the Garland Justice Department that I've ever heard. So I won't tell anyone you said that to me, but don't say that to anybody else. The notion that anything (laughs) I say, it's ludicrous, it's ludicrous. And so they're going to do what they're going to do. But my worry is that their theory of the case is that that which would be political has actually turn them into the most political actors on the field.
0: The only thing that's more ludicrous than that is the fact that that might not be ludicrous, which is like a whole (laughs) whole crazy shit. Very quick, let me ask you this last question. What's the standard in the end by which we will judge the success or failure of the 1-6 committee?
1: What happens on election day in the next presidential election? Does the party that loses accept their defeat?
0: Okay, that's good. I think it's more fair to think of it that way, right? Then, I mean, I think that what's happened is that because this notion of Trump, the white whale, you know, indicting Trump, prosecuting Trump, the accountability that everybody seeks, this notion that he seems to have operated with impunity for so long, it's so frustrating to so many people that Trump has never paid. He's paid in various ways, but he's not paid legally. He's not been brought to account. Legally, it frustrates an enormous number of people. And now it's like because the one six committee is going after him in this way, as like Ahab, like going after the white whale, they've sort to of put themselves in this position where they could end up being faulted for a thing that they have no control over, which right. I think is the the kind of weird paradox of all this. Right. I think that's that could easily end up happening. Well, they went after Trump and they shot and missed. It's like, well, except they're not really the ones ultimately with the ability to put him in cuffs, so to speak.
1: I mean, yeah. you, I think you can lay that at the feet of the Mueller team. You can't yeah. lay that at the foot of the 1-6 committee. They're there to preserve and protect democracy for the next presidential election.
0: Yes, all that true. Uh, and I want to talk about, you know, another big story that is connected to the 1-6 committee. And that is one that's been, has rocked Washington these seasons since the first broke a little while back. Uh, but first, we got to take a quick break. So we'll be right back with Nicole Wallace here on Hell and I Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. I want to talk about this other big story that also connects to the 1-6 committee. It was the story in a way that broke the spell. And I don't mean to suggest that Russia, yeah. Ukraine is not still an urgent story. But we had literally, in media, been focused almost at the exclusion of everything else. Yeah. Everything else for four weeks on the war. I would say justifiably and rightly so. But then something happened, this Ginny Thomas story happened, and man, everybody went, whoa, what the fuck? So here, I want (laughs) to play a piece of sound for you. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. There's not that much Ginny Thomas sound out there, but there is a little. And I want to play this. This is a speech that she did back in October of 2018 to an interest group, conservative interest group here in Washington, D.C. The speech was called Securing a Conservative Victory in November. This is right before the midterms. So... I want to play both of these pieces of sound, just so people hear what Jenny Thomas sounds like when she's in public and speaking to her people. Let's play the first one, and then we'll play the second one.
2: We can't be intimidated. We can't be confused. America is in a vicious battle for its founding principles, and you and I are living through it, and we're being called to listen and act very carefully. Because the hard left is in control of the Democrat party. You can see that. They're pushing and pulling at the party. They're they're also controlling the media and corporations and Hollywood and education. And we're in the minority in our country. Uh, The deep state is serious and it's resisting President Trump. The left is saying they want to kill people who are voting for Kavanaugh. May we all have guns and concealed carry to handle what's coming, by the way. And what they've done to Brett Kavanaugh. Yes, I'm feeling the pain. Clarence is feeling the pain of going through false charges against a good man. And what they're doing is unbelievable. I thought it couldn't get worse than Clarence's, but it did.
0: Look, it's a few years old, but there she is in 2018, not that long ago. And, you know, the left is saying they want to kill people who are voting for Kavanaugh. May we all have guns and concealed carry to handle what's coming, by the way. Even if when you hear that, Nicole, it's still amazing the stuff that's in those text messages. And I would I haven't heard you really opine on this topic so far in great detail. But we've discussed it a little bit. So tell me what you make of Ginny Thomas.
1: So I want to just defend the principle of having a partisan spouse. Right. I mean, it happens. And that is not the principle under scrutiny with this story. And you're right, this was the first big story to pierce through a singular focus on the war in Ukraine, because it represents such a calamity for the U.S. Supreme Court. It raises such questions about why Donald Trump repeatedly talked about getting his election defeat to the Supreme Court. You know, Donald Trump is, if nothing else, non-accidental. He doesn't accidentally talk about getting that bizarre lawsuit from the Texas AG to the Supreme Court. He doesn't accidentally do anything. There was something in Donald Trump's head that made him think that once his defeat was at the Supreme Court, everything would be all right. So that makes these texts existential to understanding all of Donald Trump's conduct and tweets and statements during this period between his defeat and the ultimate inauguration of Joe Biden. But the other thing we've covered a lot is the crisis for the U.S. Supreme Court. And John Roberts has talked about it. Justice Breyer talked about it. They've all talked about this fact as though it is an accident that's sort of a a byproduct of gravity. No, there's a crisis with the U.S. Supreme Court because of comments like the ones you just heard. And you also have to, I think, slice off Clarence Thomas' voting record from election day forward. He's the only justice. He voted you know, outside the mainstream of the far right block of the U.S. Supreme Court in terms of the 1-6 committee not having access to Donald Trump's records. It makes you want to know if right. some of that was motivated by his wife's communications with the chief of staff. We don't know if it was, but it makes you want to know. It makes you want to know why Clarence Thomas was in the minority on all three of the cases that made it to the Supreme Court. About absentee ballots, I think, in Pennsylvania, and this other one about the Texas suit. And I think at a moment when these two things intersect, the public crisis, I mean, 20 percent fewer people, according to Gallup, approve of the Supreme Court than they did after the 2000 presidential election Bush right. v. Cor. That's extraordinary to me.
2: Yes. That's
1: extraordinary. Yeah. And. She's to the fringe of Tucker Carlson on the election theories in those texts, which is a hard thing to be right now. And she was married to the person who voted in three instances with the Trump White House and the Trump interests. It just makes you want to know a whole lot more about Ginny and Clarence Thomas.
0: When you hear... Republicans, I could play sound all day long of this, the Republicans are like, you know, you're attacking this woman's right to free speech or, no, you no, no, you know, no. you're attacking. it's mis- I mean, I, I think I heard Josh Hawley claim that Democrats in asking Clarence Thomas to recuse from future 1-6 cases were being misogynist <laughs> because they were targeting his wife for her exercising her free speech rights. So, you know, it's like, first of all, no, no, it's yeah. not about her free speech rights. It's about this central question about whether or not Thomas is not disclosing Interests that his wife right. may have that his rulings would affect, which is what, you know, federal judges are told they're not allowed to do. You can't rule in cases where you or a family member have an interest where you would benefit in some way. Doesn't even have to be financial. That's like what we expect from our judges. But I, I want to do the ideological thing before I get to the crazy defense of that. It is wild, is it not, to hear someone who's so embedded in the establishment of Washington, D.C., the Republican establishment, wife of a Supreme Court justice, wife of Clarence Thomas, you know, that batshit crazy, right? I mean, the yeah. things she's espousing in those texts are, you just said, to the further to the right of Tucker Carlson, they're QAnon theories, right? Yeah. And I think it raises this question, Nicole, which is, I think one of the comfortable fictions of the four years of Trump was that Republican establishmentarians – knew that Trump was full of shit, but they tolerated his craziness because they were down with his program on taxes or, or policy in some way to the extent he had any policies. But when you see Jenny Thomas, she's a very clear window into the notion that, well, there are some people like Mitch McConnell who are like that, you know, who kind of tolerated him but knew yeah. he was crazy. But there were others who were firmly in the middle of the Washington Republican establishment who are just as fucking crazy as anybody in QAnon.
1: Yeah. And I think you're so right. This was dangerous. And I think when you look at the Trump question, and your answer is constantly, well, they don't agree with him. They're not okay with grabbing women in the bleep. They're not okay with good people on both sides of a KKK rally. They're not okay with shithole countries. That was always wrong. Because if they weren't okay, there were plenty of things they could have done. They could have attacked him, they could have left the party, they could have retired. But the Rob Portman's and the, you know, I don't even know who else to put in it, Richard Burrs, I guess. The people who saw the world the way George W. Bush did were in the very, very slim minority. And the truth is, to sort of go back to parallels to Trumpism and threats to the homeland, the radicalization of the establishment, right, is the most underreported story in America. And I felt it and saw it in 15 and 16 when on shows you and I used to peer on, people would take up for Trump and what he tapped into. And I was like, what? It doesn't come down to like tax cuts and Supreme court nominations, but that was window covering for what had really become a radicalized right. And I think Ginny Thomas encapsulates that.
0: And then you get to the recusal question, right? So You know, we had heard that Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas had both publicly said that they were each other's best friends. Then there's this little piece of video that popped up here on the question of like, what did Clarence Thomas know about what she was doing in the run up to one six? This little piece of video popped up from the Daily Caller News Foundation where they're filmed talking to each other. Let's just play that little exchange. Ginny Thomas and Clarence Thomas, where Ginny starts asking him a question about his time on the Supreme Court. Let's hear Ginny ask her question and then hear Clarence Thomas
2: respond. And the best part of being a justice? It's first of all, it's um, it'd be impossible without you. I'm, I have to be honest. I mean, it would be. Um, it's sort of like how do you run with one leg? You can't. It makes it whole when I have my wife.
0: Now, that's a sweet sentiment. Any any spouse would like to hear that from their spouse, even if sometimes spouses say those kind of things and they're totally full of shit. It could just be perfunctory spousal buttering up. On the other hand, again, to your point about raising questions, is it really possible that Jenny Thomas was advocating the way she was advocating with Mark Meadows in these text messages, that when the insurrection happened on January 6th, when the riot happened, that that night over dinner, Clarence Thomas and Jenny Thomas never discussed it? Is that really possible? You know, again, there's nothing wrong with any of that, except as it goes to the question of how Thomas ruled in these cases and in future cases related to this insurrection. I think it's a super important question to get to the bottom of for the extant question going forward. There are other cases he's going to rule on, like the Eastman case and maybe others related to one six where recusal has to be on the table, at least. And in order to judge the necessity of recusal, you need to understand more about the relationship and what he knew and what he didn't know, I think.
1: Look, it's a marriage, and nobody knows what's going on inside a marriage except the two people in it, and not even always that for every situation. But I think that this is the crisis of John Roberts' chief justiceness, right? And this is the crisis of the United States Supreme Court, and this is a crisis on the American right. I mean, the American left and the American center does not trust, doesn't have any faith in the integrity of the United States Supreme Court. This is something that pains. Chief Justice Roberts. And you now have all of this evidence, and we don't, again, we don't know where the evidence leads, but we now have evidence that Ginny Thomas was as radicalized as anyone that showed up in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. She believed the far-right fringes. What she had that makes her different from, you know, the insurrectionists who've been sentenced already is, one, she didn't carry out any violent acts. But on the other hand, she had a direct and open line to the White House chief of staff. She she alludes to talking to Jared Kushner. And it is essential if the Supreme Court wants to have credibility with anyone outside, not just the right, but the far hardened, radicalized right. It is essential that those questions be flushed out and answered. I don't know how John Roberts does that because. Within that echo chamber, there's a permission structure for these kinds of things to be said. There's cheering. I mean, she's cheering Mark Meadows to accept Sidney Powell's theory of the case. If you go back in time, Sidney Powell was too batshit crazy for for Donald Trump. Trump. So she's channeling as the wife of a Supreme Court justice. And again, we don't know yet how much of this was shared between her and her husband, but she's channeling this view that is more extreme than where Donald Trump is in these days to the White House chief of staff. So it's an extraordinary crisis for the court, an extraordinary crisis for John Roberts, and it renders a whole lot of, I think, scary possibilities on Clarice Thomas's votes around cases involving one six.
0: I want to play one more thing on this topic, and then we'll move on. But when I heard this speech that Mitch McConnell gave the other day, as you know, Nicole, all of official Washington, D.C., where I am right now, all of official Republican Washington is circling the wagons around Clarence Thomas. Again, this is not a question about Jenny Thomas's free speech rights. This is a question about recusal. And again, this Eastman case is going to come before the court. Thomas has voted the way he's voted. And you're right. I think John Roberts, who cares enormously about Trying to rebuild the institutional credibility of the court and in despairs of the way in which it's become to be seen as a partisan and in some people's view, many people's view, corrupt, corrupt institution. This is like a nightmare for him. Right. And yet here we have, as John Roberts, I'm sure, agonizes, agonizes over what to do about this. You have the specter of this becoming just another partisan thing where every Republican rushes to Clarence Thomas's defense, including saying things like what Mitch McConnell said on the Senate floor the other day. I just want to play this and listen to it. We'll analyze it on the merits on the other side. Let's play
2: McConnell. Clarence Thomas is a great American, an outstanding justice. He is faithful to the text of our laws and constitution His writing is clear. His reasoning is rigorous and transparent. I have total confidence in Justice Thomas' impartiality in every aspect of the work of the court. Each of the nine justices should feel free to make every single judicial decision they make with total independence and complete freedom. What cases they hear, how they hear them, how they rule, whether and when they recuse themselves, And whether and when they retire, I hope none of these justices give any of the radical left's various pressure campaign a minute's thought.
0: When I heard him say this, I thought, okay, like I'm not surprised that McConnell's rallying to Thomas's defense, that they're friends, for one thing. But is this really the standard? Can you imagine? Let's put it this way. Can you imagine? Mitch McConnell saying this about a, a, a liberal member of the Supreme Court saying each of the nine justices, I know he says each of the nine justices, but can you imagine him saying this in a similar controversy yeah. over Sonia Sotomayor? Each of the nine justices should feel free to make every single judicial decision they make with total independence and complete freedom, what cases they hear, how they hear them, how they rule, whether and when they recuse themselves. His view is like these judges are beyond any scrutiny any standard, any code, anything. They should just decide. If a Supreme Court justice has a million dollars in in stock in company X or Company Y, and the case involving that company drops on the lap of the Supreme Court, that justice should be allowed to decide that on his own. It's totally irrelevant. There should be no cases in which we can tell them whether they should recuse or not. I just think that standard is absolutely mind-bendingly insane.
1: It's insane. And it ignores the very recent history of the United States Supreme Court. And I think Justice Sotomayor, who you mentioned a minute ago, is the one illuminating where we are. Here's where we are with the U.S. Supreme Court. There are state legislatures writing laws because of the nomination and confirmation of the hard right wing of the court. That's where we are. Abortion laws in America are being made, predicated on the confirmation of the newest hard-right Supreme Court justices. That's where we are. It's an undeniable... Before Ginny Thomas's texts and speeches were under scrutiny, that's where we are in America. Laws are being made. State legislatures are standing up and saying, we're making this law because of the far-right additions to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's the baseline. That's the baseline stench that Justice Sotomayor talked about. So you take that stench that Sotomayor eloquently and painfully... Again, this is all painful for them. It's painful to watch, but it's painful for them. They have spoken to their pain. And the gasoline you pour onto that is the specter, not just of Ginny Thomas's text, but of Clarence Thomas's three votes. What the court has to answer for and what Roberts has to deal with is how Thomas has voted, not what Ginny Thomas has said.
0: Right. I said that was the last question on this topic, but I do want to ask you one more thing that's just related. It's amazing that this came right on the heels of the... KBJ hearings. And I want to get you just to opine on that. This week, there's going to be a vote. We looks like in the Senate, she's going to get confirmed. She's going to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court and the performance of Republicans in that. I mean, I find confirmation hearings now so horrible. I can barely watch them. It's just so terrible. But I want to just get just like this one question I'll ask you about this. She's going to get confirmed. She's going to be on the court taking all of it. The worse than Kabuki, the bad faith, the demagoguery, the citation of child pornography, and can you define a woman, and all of the shit that happened, and a couple moments of genuine inspiration where it was kind of beautiful, You know, where Cory Booker spoke on her behalf, other things. Sum it all up, the hearings and what it means, should we take heart from the fact that, yeah, there was a lot of Kabuki and a lot of bullshit, but in the end, she's going to be on the court, and that's a great thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I think of the pink song, right? She's fucking perfect. And I think for a lot of black women, like you have to be fucking perfect if you're a black woman to get what is within reach for, you know, perhaps other genders and other races. But I think (laughs) just stipulated, you know, she's she's fucking perfect. And she was perfect through her confirmation hearings. What is an embarrassment? is that Lindsey Graham sought to vote for her because she's fucking perfect when she was up for the appeals court and couldn't bring himself to vote for her because of no other intervening fact. She didn't change. She didn't vote any differently, but politics. And what's, you know, so sort of broken is that you have to be that good, I think, as a black woman to have that outcome guaranteed to you. And it wasn't even guaranteed. But that there's such a domination by the far right and they couldn't bring themselves to confirm someone who, you know, flies through all the previously accepted standards of being supremely qualified. Sad commentary on the right.
0: A thousand percent agree with that. Not surprisingly, in the end. I think we should stop televising these confirmation hearings. Yeah, I think that's right. They are no longer edifying to the public. They are no longer what they once Even, you know, people talk about this, but even the Bork hearings, which were actually quite substantive, they were also ideological, but they were quite substantive. There's like a serious high-level law school seminar put on there. These are not that. And it's just become a platform for preening and pandering and grandstanding and all the kind of worst instincts of the most assholic United States senators we know. And on that felicitous note, we are going to take one more break and we'll be back with more Nicole Wallace on Hell and High Water. And we are back for the third part of the first part of this two-part episode featuring Nicole Wallace here on Hell and High Water. I told you I was going to talk about Russia and Ukraine. And here's what I I don't want to talk about news of day really so much on this. We know where this war stands. It's funny, I was, you know, guest hosting for you on Deadline White House when the war started that week.
1: The three days, right.
0: And then we've been on the air a few times and talked about this, but I haven't really had a chance to really elevate with you and talk about some of the bigger things here. So I want to play Zelensky's, the end of Zelensky's speech to Congress we had this on the show previously, but I think it's one of those moments for history that I want to talk through with you. So here's Zelensky giving that speech that he zoomed in to the joint session of Congress when he switched at the end and spoke English at the very end of the speech.
1: Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine. We are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. Slava Ukraine.
0: So we started out talking about Liz Cheney on the issues around the 1-6 committee, her not having put a foot wrong for months. Zelensky's been you know, a figure in our really in our public consciousness. I know he has a prior history, but really for the world, it's like now about five weeks. And understanding that there's way more to this whole story, obviously, at the human level, at the national security level, at the foreign policy level, this is not just a story about communications, but Nicole is a former communications professional, his former uh, White House communications director. Just to evaluate how Zelensky has handled the challenge of communications, which has been about rallying the world to his cause to try to save his people in five weeks. Just what's your assessment?
1: I mean, I'm glad that, you know, we sort of stipulated that Zelensky and Ukraine cannot be reduced to a story, right? He's not just a good story. He is a leader for the ages. And I think when you look at communications and a leader, and you look at communications around an event, It's never about the communications. I mean, what Zelensky has going for him is this bond that, you you know, you don't know how a leader will lead his country at war until the leader has to lead their country into war. And the tie that Zelensky has to his people around the, and it's not an existential question, it's an actual question of their independence and whether or not they remain a democracy Each piece has to fit together like this. I mean, he's in step with the ideals and the values of his country. He's on the right side, not of history, but of the day, of the day. The Russians are slaughtering innocents and children in Mariupol and other parts of Ukraine. And he has pushed. And again, I think President Biden has done just about everything that he's been pushed to do short of, Involving our country and in the war on the ground. And I think that Zelensky will be studied his speeches and his conduct and even the decisions about where to locate himself and his wife's communications forever. I mean, I just think we're watching history unfold. But for them, it's not that. For them, it's this country being annihilated and bombed and slaughtered by Russia. I think Russia offers the inverse, right? You have a leader totally out of step with his own military, it would appear, you know, very low morale, very incompetent military strategy. And that exists at the same time that they're capable of doing extraordinary damage in Ukraine and to the country of Ukraine. But I think Zelensky is just an unbelievable example of leadership and a huge part of what he's marshaled is what you're talking about, the ability to communicate.
0: <laughs> the stakes for this communications challenge he's facing, which is, as I said before, rallying the world to save his people, right? This is not a trivial thing. This is not sp- about spin. This is about like right. communicating with moral urgency. It's about communicating with his own people. That's what a large part of what leadership is about. I know you agree. You know, and I think you can say that it's true that to do what Zelensky has done, someone who basically no one in the world knew who he was five weeks ago. I mean, really 0.1% of people in the world knew who he was. And now everybody basically does that. He's like, you know, going to be on t-shirts, right? Like he's become a global figure. I have a
1: Zelensky Lego on my fridge.
0: Right. See, that's what I mean. (laughs) I've said this before. There's like some kind of like Nelson Mandela meets Che Guevara kind of quality to it, like in the sense of like the pop icon element of it. I don't think I've ever seen anybody do it to go from how unknown he was to how ubiquitous he's been in such a short period of time. You can't do those things without first the opportunity given in a way of, you know, you need a Darth Vader to be Luke Skywalker. And you had that in Putin. And then he was Luke Skywalker. Like you had to do the shit, right? You can't just spin your way into this. But then you also have to figure out how to, communicate it. And I just think it's been like a masterclass in obviously bravery and fortitude and all of that, but also just his ability to like go around the world and speak to the Canadians, the Japanese, the Germans, the Americans, everybody in their different forums with slightly different messages and like hit it out of the park every time. Plus, I'm on Telegram, plus I'm on Twitter, plus I'm on TikTok. Yeah. I think they, they have exhibited an understanding of the modern media environment that's quite stunning. Yeah, And I, I've never seen anything like it. I really literally yeah. never seen anything yeah. like it in my life. Yeah. Have you?
1: No, there's not been anything like it. And I think just to your point, the message to America taps into our trauma of 9-11 in Pearl Harbor. The message to Germany taps into their history. The messages are also fine-tuned to every country's pain and trauma to help us get right into the moment they're living right now. I think the other thing that you're talking about is really worth focusing on here as we sort of roar into week six. Ukraine was divided politically. And people that are now willing to die serving in Ukraine's army under the leadership of Zelensky didn't support him necessarily five weeks ago. But for Ukraine, their democracy and their survival as a country was bigger than their divisions. And it's an open question, I think, for the rest of the Western world. Is there still something for which we can unite around? I mean, for us, it wasn't one six, right? It wasn't a violent effort to end our tradition of a peaceful transfer of power it just it puts the question onto the rest of us to ponder what if anything would still unite us around a common cause ukraine has answered it in spades
0: Yeah, I mean, that is definitely something to ponder. And, you know, at this hour, at least, I'm not sure what, what it would be. I mean, I can come up with some things, but I'm not sure everyone would agree. Uh, There's obviously a lot more for us to discuss, Nicole. Um, We haven't even gotten to you and George W. Bush, your experience working for him during 9-11 and how his handling of that crisis compares, at least as a communications thing, with the Zelensky's current performance, and and then we want to go deep on your former party. We have a bunch of Jagoffs to deal with over there. You know, not just Trump, but Tucker and their connections to Putin, and you going in on Chris Christie, and then of course the return of Sarah Palin. There's a lot to cover, even before we get to at least a little bit of talk about. The actual current president of the united states joe biden so with all of that still to get to you know there's no question we always knew it from the very beginning we said this will be a two-parter there's no way we're going to get it all into one episode and that turns out to be true so listeners come back tomorrow for the second part of this special two-part episode of hell and high water with the one and only nicole wallace we'll see you then